Amen. Thank you, guys. Well, good morning. How's everybody? Good. Glad to hear. Glad to hear that. Welcome to our virtual crowd. We're thankful to have you this morning. Um, if you're joining us now or tomorrow or Tuesday or whatever day you see this, we're glad that you're able to um, join us in the way that you are. And so if you have your Bible this morning, it'll be in Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. And as you turn there... I just want to let you know that uh, we had originally intended on doing verses 1 through 3 this morning, um, but we're not, okay? So, so we're going to take a little bit of a different turn, and we're going to deal with the first couple of verses, and, and in my preparation, I just really felt like it would be helpful for us um, to, to have sort of an introduction to the law. So for the next eight or nine chapters, we are going to see a lot of law. Is that exciting? You look excited. Wow. Okay. Good. This is the legalistic service, in case y'all were wondering. Here are all the legalists. They're ready for the list of, of rules to follow. Well, you're going to get them. You're going to get them for, for, for a few months. And, and so I thought it would be really helpful for us to sort of have, a, you know, just this, as a, this service as a point of reference to, um, you know, for us to re, uh, refer back to and for you to think on as we go through these various laws. Um, because th there is an awful lot for us to learn here. But I think an intro is necessary so that we can have a, a vital, um, or I'm sorry, not vital, a, a better understanding. I think it's vitally important. That's what I was trying to say. It's third service, guys. Vitally important for us to have a better understanding of the law because of how often the Old Testament and the New Testament references the law. And, and it really just says the one word. It, it just says law. But there, there are some aspects to the law that we will look at today. And so next Sunday we will have a, a Christmas service. And so, you know, um, plan to attend that. And then December the 27th, we will have a service that has some extended time of prayer and also an extended time of, of communion together. And there will also be some music in there as well. And so we're hoping to kind of carve that last Sunday of the year and um, wherever it falls into our um, just just normal calendar so that it can be a time that we thank the Lord for the year that we've just come through and also to prepare our hearts for the year that is that is coming. And so that'll, that's what the next two Sundays will look like. And then starting January 3rd, if the Lord wills, we will open Exodus back up and we will begin with the first commandment. So if you would read with me from God's Word in Exodus chapter 20 verses 1 and 2. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Father, what a great privilege it is um, to gather today in, in, in your name and with your word open. Um, you have spoken, Lord. And Lord, help us to be, be excited about that. Help us to be reverent towards that. Um, and Lord, we have to have your help in order to understand what you've spoken. And so we ask for that. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would clear our minds um, from distractions, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth and, and, and hearts that are receptive. Lord, I pray this morning that you would teach us um, what your word means when it says the law. Um, and so, Father, I 
greatest desire this morning is that you are glorified. And so we ask that you glorify yourself this morning as we seek to glorify you. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so this will not be a full exposition or explanation of everything that the Bible has to say about the law of God. Um, so, so just know that. It, it's going to be very general. And, and also, um, I feel the urge to, sit, to ask you to, to sit up straight and not touch your neighbor because it's going to feel like a classroom. Um, in, in the middle of the first service, it's weird how when you're preaching and teaching, you actually haven't conversations with yourself why stuff's coming out of your mouth like the, the brain is incredible and so I like as I was teaching I was looking around and, I, and I'm thinking I'm waiting on somebody to raise their hand and ask for a bathroom pass you know so 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 this the tone of this message is going to be a little bit different than um, the, the previous messages so I'm going to have a lot of of slides there's going to be a lot of definitions we're going to try to define some words we're going to look at some um, various places in scripture and so not that you care but I just want you to know it, it's it's going to feel like maybe um, a, a seminary class this morning, but I'm not going to use a lot of big words, so that's a good thing. Alright, in verse 1 we see the first and most important thing that we need to know about God's law, and that the law is from the Lord. Look at verse 1. And God spoke all these words. Now, um, that that may not floor you, and, and you may go, well, Hank, that, like that's so obvious. We know that, that that the Lord has spoken these words, and because I've been taught that my whole life. But just to remind you of our journey through the Book of Exodus, I mean, I mean, this is the Lord. This is the God who has brought them out of Egypt. They they have seen this Lord exhibit tremendous power and strength. They now believe that He is the one true God, or or at least they um, they have experienced, even if they've always believed it, they've now experienced what it means to be the children of the one true God. Last week in Exodus chapter 19, um, it, it was terrifying. If you remember, we said, if, if you're not afraid, you should be afraid. Because the Lord in His holiness in this dark cloud, He, he comes down in thunder and lightning and um, the, um, the earth is, is, is shaken. He gives, graciously gives His people a warning to be prepared for me to come down the mountain. Well, now, now this Lord, the Holy One, the Righteous One, is speaking. He's the one who speaks. Now, um, look at verse 2, and I'm going to say some more on, on verse 2 in just a second, but I want you to see who he's speaking to. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. And so it's, it's easy to think about this in the sense of, well, this is just a declaration over a corporate people, and, and it is that. It is that. The, the nation of Israel, but there's also a very personal sense to the law of God and to God speaking and that God is making eye contact, not just with a, a people in general. God is making eye contact with people, with, with individuals. And so as we journey through these next eight or nine chapters in Exodus and we see God's law, it's important that we understand it that way, that it is the Lord speaking, and it's the Lord speaking to, to individuals. In Isaiah chapter 42, verse 21, I, I feel like he gives us some, some good insight and understanding what it means for the law to come from the Lord. Where Isaiah says, The Lord was pleased for His righteousness' sake to magnify His law and make it glorious. All of us would agree, I think, that the Lord is glorious. 
Well, because the Lord is glorious, His law is glorious because He's the one that's given it. And so that's what Isaiah is saying. He, he's saying that it, it pleased the Lord for the sake of His righteousness to magnify His law and make it glorious. So the law is great because God is great. And any law always reveals the character of the lawgiver. Does that make sense? And so, for example, we have laws in our land, um, and one that I thought about um, that, that, that it was, was helpful for me to think about was, so there are building codes, and in, in in, in a part of those building codes, I know many of you in this room know about this, um, they, they're half, like the doorways have to be a, a certain distance apart, the bathrooms have to be built in a certain way, and it's so that people who are disabled or wheelchair-bound can, can have access to the same things that people who are not disabled have access to. And so that is, in effect, that's a law, and so Brandon can tell you, Jared can probably tell you, there's probably more of you in here that could say, if, if you don't abide by those laws and that inspector comes in, what do you have to do? You've got to fix it, right? And so that is a law that reveals the character of our society in that we are a society that desires to see every person, able or disabled, to have the same opportunities in our public buildings. And, and, and so the law of God does that same thing for us and for Him. It, it reveals His character to us. Second thing, you know, I'm going to say the second most important thing about the law. First is that it's from the Lord. Second is that the law is given in the context of grace. Look at verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. Now, it, it, it may be surprising to discover that the intro to a whole lot of words, thousands of words of law, the intro is not law. The intro is the gospel. Now, not the gospel as we know the gospel. We've said over and over through our journey through Exodus that this is their gospel. What we've just read over the last few weeks is, is their salvation story. It's, it's what they taught their children. It's what they were to teach their grandchildren and to their great-grandchildren. It's what many of the psalmists wrote about, what many of the prophets referenced when they talk about the strong arm and the salvation of the Lord. They're talking about the Exodus. And so this, um, this, these chapters of law that will follow have this wonderful foundation of grace. God's people had been saved by grace so that they could live for the Lord. If you remember last week, we, we talked about this order. And the order of the salvation for the Israelites is that first God saved them. In chapter 19, we saw the second step, a call to obedience or a call to faith. And then starting in chapter 20, we see the third step, and that is a giving of the law. Now, if, if we don't get it right, if we don't get that order right, friends, this is important, we lose the gospel. If we believe that the law and the commandments are the way that we receive this salvation, then we lose the gospel. 
That's why Exodus, one of the reasons Exodus is so clear, it's so blatantly clear um, of how the Israelites were saved is in effect to teach us about what it means to be saved. First we're saved, and it's only after we're saved that we even have the ability to believe or the ability to have faith. So it just makes sense that God saves us, and then there's a call to obedience or a call to faith, and then what follows that are the commands. That order is vitally, vitally important. And so God's people had been saved by grace so they could be free to live by the laws of God's covenant community. That has been the language. Uh, uh, look, uh, some, some dots should be connected right here. That has been the language of the book of Exodus from the beginning. It's been the language from the beginning because up to this point, God's people were under the law of Pharaoh. They had to obey the commands of Pharaoh, and they had to serve Pharaoh. So God has told them, and Moses went time and time again to Pharaoh and told them to let my people go so that they can serve who? Me. And so now God has saved his people, and he's called them to faith, and now he will give them the laws that they are to live by. The laws, they're twofold. And, and we saw these phrases last week. They were to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And, and so God saved them so that they would live by His law within His covenant community. And it was for their good, but it was also for the good of others. And so it wasn't just about the life that they lived together. It was certainly helpful for that as they served the Lord by serving one another. But they were also to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so the giving of the law is also missional in that God's people are meant to be different. They're meant to live different. They're meant to talk different. As we're going to see, they're meant to eat different. Like God's going to give so many laws that set His people apart from, from other nations. So God did not save His people so that they could do whatever they wanted. That's not the freedom that God brought them. God saved His people so they could be free to live for him. And, and that, friends, as, as, as an application to the Israelites, was the point of the Exodus. The point of the Exodus was so, God people, so, so God's people were free to live for him. And for those of us who are believers today, and what I mean by believers is, is for those of us who have come to the Father through the Son, we've placed our faith and trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He has not saved us from our sin so that we're free to live however we want to live. He saved us from our sin and freed us to be able to now live for Him and to live for His glory. And, and I think it's at this point for us that there can be confusion. It can get cloudy. You start thinking, well, am I under the law? Or am I under grace? Did these Old Testament laws apply to us? Like, do I need to stay at home for the next three months of Sundays because we're going to be talking about something that doesn't apply to me at all? Please don't do that. Okay, don't do that. Or does some of them apply? I mean, there are a myriad of questions that can surface in our minds around the law, particularly how the law is applied to people who have been saved by grace. But what I've tried to argue thus far is that we're not saved any differently than the Old Testament people were saved and that they were too, they too were saved by grace. And so, 
I think it's necessary to make some distinctions. Um, three, there are three types of law. And so if you want to go ahead and jot these three down, you, if you're taking notes, you want to leave some space in between them because I'm going to give you some definitions in a second. The three types of law, the moral law, the civil law, and the ceremonial law. And so in order for us to make sense of how the Bible uses the phrase, just the word, I mean the Bible does not make this distinction of, of, in, um, within the law of God, but in order for us to understand or make sense of the law, and I think ultimately the gospel, I think we must carefully distinguish these three things as we see them through the clear lens of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, let's unpack this a little bit. The moral law, and there will be a definition behind me, I think. There'll be a definition, moral law, the definition behind me. Y'all, Zach has been so enthralled in my sermons this morning that he has forgotten to change the slides. And so, that, that you're, he's consistent. All right, so the, so the moral law, here's the definition, is summarized in the Ten Commandments. The moral law is the righteous standard for our relationship with God and with others. And so I'm going to say this in a way that even the kids can get. This is right and wrong. This is um, just, just that that's in all of us that's been placed there by the Lord that we know when we've done something wrong. We know when we've been wronged and have a sense that we deserve justice. And we know, and, and just as part of being a human, that we typically desire to see justice served. You don't have to be born again to think something is right or to think something is wrong. You don't have to be born again to seek justice or to desire justice for those who have been wronged. You don't have to be born again to desire for there to be morality. But in the Ten Commandments we will see a summarization of God's moral law. Second, the civil law. Now, the civil law consisted of the laws that governed Israel as a nation. For example, how, to wage, how and when to wage war, restrictions on land use, regulations for debt, we're going to see all of these, penalties for specific violations of Israel's legal code. So, so these, the civil law, were simply the ordinary daily function for citizens. Think, think traffic ticket. I'm sorry if I just made you have bad thoughts. Th think running a stop sign. These are just normal laws. And, and, and there is some overlap in the moral and in the civil, but there is a clear distinction in the word. Third, the ceremonial law. This consisted of regulations for celebrating various religious festivals for worshiping the Lord. We're going to see these. These laws would include clean and unclean foods, Instructions for ritual purity, guidelines for the conduct of the priest, um, um, especially instructions around sacrifices. So when you, when you hear ceremonial law, you need to think about the whole sacrificial system. It was religious in, in nature. So you have this moral law that's about right and wrong. You have the civil law, which was given by God for the nation of Israel as a state specifically, and then you have the ceremonial law that was all about their worship and how they were to worship the Lord. I want to give you a point of clarification. God gave this as one law. And so everything that I just told you, you, you won't find that language in the Bible. 
the Bible doesn't make a distinction between the moral law, the civil law, and the ceremonial law. And so I want to be clear with that. I only make the distinction because it's helpful for us to understand the way the Old Testament and the New Testament speaks to the law of God and how the New Testament at times can seem so dismissive of the law of God, where in the Old Testament it seems like if you dismiss the law of God, um, the punishment is death or you're cut off from His people. So God gave this as one law. But as it seems, the ceremonial law is expired. And this is because all its regulations pointed forward to who? Well, some interaction will help. Jesus. All of its regulations, all of the religious rituals pointed forward to Christ. So concerning the Old Testament ceremonies, Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1 makes it crystal clear. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, Instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same... All right, if you underline or highlight, this is so clear. It can what? Never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. So the ceremonial law is now expired, and, and the reason that it's expired is it's because of Jesus. And so the ceremonial laws that we'll read about, what the Bible tells us is that they're a shadow. So, so what does that mean? It means they prefigure something. Like they are um, a picture of, of, of something that's not the real thing. And so if, if Brad and Tori, and not that I've seen them do this, but if they go out in the parking lot and they're just, you know, they're, they're real lovey-dovey. And they're, they're arm in arm and, and, and Tori decides that she wants to give Brad a kiss on the cheek. Do you think she's going to look over and go, oh, well there's Brad's shadow. I'm going to kiss his shadow. That might be more sanitary in this pandemic, right? But she's not going to kiss the shadow. Why? Because it's not Brad. It's not Brad. It's a picture. It's, it's, it's a symbol. It's, it's a form. But it's not, it's not the real thing. And so that's what the writer of Hebrews is teaching us about the ceremonial law, specifically these religious activities that they were commanded to do by the coming of Jesus by the coming of Jesus, they have been fulfilled and they are, are finished. And so, and so why does this matter? Well, it matters because if we read the Bible in, in, in this way and we go, well, the Bible says this about ceremonial law, so we need to do this. And so we take up arms and we say, okay, well, we're going to obey the full ceremonial law that we read in the book of Exodus. That might seem all well and good. And, and you make it even argue that, hey, we're doing exactly what the Bible says. The problem with that would be is that it would deny the sufficiency of Christ's finished work. Is that a big deal? Y'all with me? Everybody do this. That's a problem. That's a problem. However, there are two ceremonies that are still in effect, or, or, or now in effect, I should say, are now in effect. And they are religious in nature. And they are the sacraments. But the sacraments don't form as a shadow of something greater to come. The sacraments form as a symbol of the one who has come. And so the sacraments today point us back to the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection 
of Jesus Christ. And, and make no mistake, we are commanded to observe those sacraments. But it's all, again, just like in Exodus, it's all in the context of what? Grace and salvation. The civil law has also expired, but for a slightly different reason. The church is not a state. The church of the living God is, is not a political party. The church of Jesus Christ, friends, and, and I, I really would love to sit down and have coffee and we can talk more about this. Maybe you can help me. But as I see it and understand it in the Word of God, the church of Jesus Christ, it, it has no affiliation with a political party. We have a king, and that king is Jesus. But our king, his kingdom, at this point, is spiritual. And so the civil laws of the Old Testament contain principles that were useful and can still be some of them useful for governing nations today. But God's people today are no longer bound by the civil law that was given specifically and the, re and the regulations that were given specifically for the Israelites when they were a state, when they were a nation. Now, if, if you want to take some of these civil laws literally, feel free to do that. But I just want to let you know, if you've never read them, it's going to get weird real quick. And so today, the people of God are governed in, in a different way. And, and by God's design, His people today are governed by the church. They're governed by spirit-filled elders that are within the church. And, and, and that can only happen because the spirit-filled elders are not the only ones with the spirit. It's because you, every born-again believer, has the spirit of God. And so the leaders of the church are to open this book and communicate it to those um, who are in the congregation. And then when there is a person or individual or family that is in living in habitual sin, then the leaders of the church have the responsibility to confront that in the context of grace, not from some hierarchy, not, not because they're more spiritual than everybody else, but for the sake of the glory of Christ and His name and the fame of His name and the purity of His bride, that is to be confronted. But the consequences for this today are not civil, they're spiritual. And so the ceremonial law and the civil law were... There were types and, and figures pointing forward to the cross of Jesus and the kingdom of Christ. And, and now that He has come, it seems to me that those two have been set aside or those two have expired, which is why the New Testament sometimes seems so dismissive of the law. Like, like there are scriptures that it seems like the New Testament, or, or because we are New Testament believers, we just completely dismiss the law. But really what it's referencing is these first two aspects of the law, the, the ceremonial law and the civil, the civil laws. Now, what about the moral law? Well, I hate to disappoint you, but the moral law has not expired. The New Testament never, anywhere that I can find, declares an end to God's moral law as the standard for our lives. I'm, I found some other writings helpful this week in this area. And so in the words of the Westminster Confession of Faith, speaking to the moral law, it says this, the moral law is a perfect rule of righteousness. John Calvin said it this way, the moral law is this true and eternal rule 
of righteousness. Another commentator describes the moral law as the eternal standard of right moral conduct, a fixed objective standard of righteousness. Now, this should make sense when we remember what we talked about about 10 or 12 minutes ago about what the law reveals of the lawgiver. We know God is eternally righteous. So, and, and so he is an eternally moral being, perfectly holy in every sense of the word. And so his moral law, again summarized by the Ten Commandments, is eternal. And, and I don't know this, but I wonder, I wonder if this is why it was written in stone. I mean, the rest of it wasn't written in stone, but the Ten Commandments were written in stone. Maybe that's saying something to us of the longevity of God's moral law. Another way to prove that the law is still binding is to show how, in one way or another, all ten of the original commandments are repeated in the New Testament. Now, I have literally 50 to 60 different New Testament verses that show this, but I'm not going to read all of them to you. Just a couple. In Matthew chapter 15... Matthew chapter 15, verse 19. It says this, For out of the heart come evil thoughts. Now, I don't know if you know the Ten Commandments. If you don't, you can go back in just a second and look at Exodus 20, and there they are. But some of you probably know at least some of them, and so you, you will see them here. For out of the heart, these are Christ's words, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Verse 20, these are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. So Jesus makes it clear that the moral law is, is still in effect. But he also makes it clear, and I love this because this helps us understand, because he's saying the moral law is, has not expired, but the ceremonial law has expired. That's what he's saying in verse 20. These are what defile a person. What he just said in verse 18. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. You see, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they wanted it, they wanted this righteousness to come externally. And so if I washed my hands, if I didn't eat certain foods, if I kept my hair clean, if I dressed the right, uh, right way, if I looked the right way, and I acted the right way, and I talked the right way, then that means that I am intrinsically righteous. But Jesus says, hold on a second. Those ceremonial laws could never do that. They were never intended to bring that. And so that's why he says in verse 20, it's not washing your hands. It's not washing your hands or keeping your hands dirty. That's the issue. The issue is washing your hands does not bring you any sort of righteousness. And he's letting them know that, that the moral law is actually deeper. There's a deeper issue to the moral law than even keeping it externally. It's because it comes from, it comes from the heart. 1 Timothy chapter 1, really quick. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verses 9 through 11. If you want to turn there with me, I'll start in verse 8. It's Paul writing to the young pastor. He says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. 
understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, and for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. And as I said, there are many, many other New Testament places that, that prove to us and show us that the moral law of God, the standard of righteousness, has not changed and it has not expired. Grace does not mean morality doesn't matter. Remember, God's people were not saved to be free to do what they wanted. They were saved to be free to live in the way that God called them to live. But similar to the civil and the ceremonial laws, the moral law points us to Christ also. You see, if, if there was a chance, and I'm looking at this room, man, there's some folks I think could give it a shot. There were 613 laws. And, and I wonder, like, like some of you, you, you're good folks, and you, you could probably take that on and say, I feel like I could obey all 613 of these laws and get them right every time. Let's just say you accomplish that, but, but you're living in this era, and Jesus is born, and he's grown up now, and you find yourself sitting on, the, um, on this hillside in front of him as he teaches the Sermon on the Mount. And I, I encourage you to go back and read in Matthew chapter 5 to have a solid understanding of this, because what Jesus teaches us is like the civil law, and like the ceremonial law, the moral law of God points us to Christ as well, because he says this in Matthew 5. He tells us what adultery actually is. He says, if you lust after a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery. He tells us what murder actually is. If, if you hate someone in your heart, you've actually committed murder. Now, there's the fellow that I know, and we've had some conversations, and his logic around this is, well, if I think it, Jesus says, I might as well do it. Because I've already done it anyway, I might as well do it. And he was using this logic around lust. Listen, friends, I don't feel like I even have to tell you this, but that, that's not what Jesus means. All right, so just because you hate somebody in your heart, it doesn't mean go kill them. Just because you lust after someone in your heart, it, it certainly doesn't mean that you should just, or you might as well just go ahead and commit adultery. That, that's not what Jesus is saying. What, what Jesus is teaching us is that the moral law and breaking the moral law is more than external. That what we do with our hands and our eyes and our whole bodies and what we say is, is a reflection of what is in our heart. And the ceremonial law and the civil law cannot clean up our heart. And we, as sinful human beings, cannot obey perfectly the moral law of God. And so, the law given in Exodus is intended to lead us to Jesus. All of them. Look, we're going to have to fight for it some Sundays. You're going to be sitting there and you're going to be like, oh my gosh, how does this apply to me? Well, I may not, or whoever's preaching that morning, may not be able to articulate it in a way that you see that it applies to you. And so, at that point, by faith, you have to understand and know that the law, its intent, 
is to show us and lead us to Christ. I'm going to close in this way. To help us understand and, and, and to leave this morning seeing that the intent of God's law is to lead us to Jesus. The law of Moses bears witness to Christ in John chapter 5, verse 39. Jesus says this, you search the scriptures. Keep in mind, like he's talking to people that are searching the scriptures. Okay, so these are religious people. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. The scriptures that he's talking about here are the first five books of the Old Testament, which include Exodus. And so he says, you search them because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they, those scriptures, Exodus, that bear witness about who? Say it. Me. Me few verses down in the same chapter, Jesus says, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe in his writings, how will you believe my words? In Luke chapter 24, Jesus says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So is there going to be a lot of law over the next few weeks? Yes. But they bear witness to Jesus. And they point us to Him. Secondly, Jesus fulfilled all that was written in the law and in the prophets. Now, all of it was pointing to Him, even where it's not explicitly prophetic. Jesus accomplishes what the law required. In Matthew chapter 5, 17 and 18, he says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to, this is key, but to what? Fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota. Do you all love that word? Can we commit? Let's, let's try to use that word this week in some other context. Not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus was the fulfillment of the ceremonial law. Jesus ushering in the spiritual kingdom is the fulfillment of the civil law. And Jesus, through his perfect life of obedience, is the fulfillment of the moral law. Which leads to this third thing. Jesus kept the law perfectly. We tend to only think about Jesus keeping the law perfectly and how it relates to his obedience. And that is certainly a wonderful way and in a way we should continue to think about Jesus keeping the law perfectly. But part of the way that Jesus kept the law perfectly was by receiving all its penalties against the people that had broken the law. Yes, the law was meant to be obeyed. That was part of the law. But there was also consequence for whenever the law was not obeyed. And so Jesus coming to fulfill the law perfectly is not only about his perfect obedience. It's about also the fact that he took on himself on the cross the punishment for breaking the law. Therefore, therefore the law is now manifestly not the path to righteousness. It's not. 
It never was meant to be. It was only meant to usher in the one who was actually the path to righteousness. As Jesus himself comes and fulfills the ceremonial, he fulfills the civil, and he fulfills the moral obligations of obedience and punishment that the moral law of God requires. Amen? Amen. Amen. And so the ultimate goal of the law is that we would look to Christ and not to law keeping for righteousness. It doesn't mean that we disobey, but it means that we understand, like we move forward as a people who have been saved, who have been declared righteous, who have been called guiltless, whose sin has been atoned for. And we desire to live in a way that brings Him glory. So Jesus has changed everything. And I want to read these following statements to you just for time's sake and so that we stay on task. And I, and, and I say them because they're important. But Jesus changed everything. The blood sacrifices ceased because Christ fulfilled all that they were pointing toward. He was the final sacrifice for sins. In Hebrews 9.12, listen friends, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. The priesthood that stood between the worshiper and God has, it ceased. There has to be an appointed mediator, a God-appointed mediator. And in the Old Covenant, under the Old Law, it was the high priest. But as we took our journey through Hebrews, we saw quickly and plainly that Jesus is the great high priest. He is the lone mediator between God and man. He is the one that still today intercedes in the holiest of holy places on behalf of His people. It, it's because of Him as our great high priest that we too can enter into the throne room of God with confidence. And if it matters to you, it may not, but the food laws that Israel um, that were used to set Israel apart from other nations, we're going to see a lot of food laws. Those have been fulfilled and ended in Christ, even those. And I encourage you to go read Mark chapter 7, verses 18 through 19, and you'll see Jesus tell the religious of his day plainly, it, it's not what you put into your mouth that defiles you. It's what comes out. Because of Jesus, the people of God are no longer unified, a unified political body. We're not an ethnic group or nation. But the Bible speaks to us differently as we exist here on this planet, in this life, as exiles and sojourners among all different ethnic groups and all different kinds of states. And so we are a, a, a kingdom people, but we're a people of a spiritual kingdom. And the Bible is clear that we are not citizens of the land that we're standing on today. Ultimately, there's nothing wrong with being a citizen of the United States and even being a good one. We should be. That's, that's one of the ways that we're set apart and distinct. But we have to know. We have to know the kingdom of God is it's not, it's not a political party. It's, it's not a physical state. It's not a physical country. This is not our home. It's, it's not. And so the people of God, because of Jesus, are to live in a way that displays that. When our state or our government or our country is shaken, we're not because we know that we're not ultimately citizens 
here. The actual kingdom that we're a part of is, is spiritual. There's, there, there's one last thing. and um, Because of Jesus, we understand that, that faith and obedience to Christ cannot be coerced by the law. Okay? You, you can't legislate salvation. You can't figure out a way to have so many... And look, I'm a parent, and boy, do we, I, w I wish it was that easy. I really wish it was so easy to just give them all these rules and all these laws, and they would be good little boys and good little girls, and they would obey them, and then they would grow up, and they would be saved, and they would be these super little Christian people that just go around and, and change the world. But you, you can't legislate salvation. The moral code does not accomplish salvation. Salvation is a result of new birth, the indwelling Holy Spirit. And so remember, our greatest prayer for one another and the lost loved ones that we have and the lost friends that we have and the lost world around us is not that they finally start acting right. It's that they're born again. They can't obey the law. We can't obey the law. And so they must be born again. So Joseph, you can come on. So as believers in Jesus, should we still be concerned with the law? Yes. Yes, and primarily because of what it teaches us about Jesus. Primarily because it points us to Jesus. Its intent was to point us to Christ. And friends, over the next eight or nine chapters, we are going to see Jesus in the book of Exodus, even though his name is not going to be mentioned. And so I thought this morning it would be helpful for us to have a point of reference and, and, to, and to not just assume that we all know and understand what the Bible means when it references the law. But just know the law is intended and meant to point us to the only one who was able and praise him. He was willing to obey it and fulfill it perfectly. And so Jesus and Jesus alone is the path to righteousness, not law-keeping. Let's pray.